We're in chapter 21, verse 28. We're beginning laws about animals. So laws about animals are pretty simple. Um, they're basically a continuation of humans. So the same ideas are, um, if you kill somebody, you should pay the price for that. If your animal kills somebody, it should pay the price for that. So a lot of these things are going to be the same principles and the same ideas that we saw with humans. The difference is the animals are their own independent will. And so the first command in verse 28 says, If an ox gores a man or woman, so either dies, the ox must surely be put to death. The death penalty stands for everybody, even animals. And so if you have an animal, a little gerbil, and it attacks somebody and kills them, then it's to be put to death. Okay, and to be dealt with. The, and, and God makes that clear in um, Genesis chapter 9 too. Whether animal or man who kills the image of God, then that person must be exterminated because they have taken the image of God. Now, it does say, but the owner is not to be put to death because the owner cannot be responsible for his own animals. Animals are wild. They have their own will. They go intuition. They can be spooked easily. So the idea is that an owner should not be held responsible for the actions of his animals. However, it goes on and says, yet if this animal has a reputation for attacking people and injuring them, and the owner has done nothing to fence it in even more or to prevent it even more or to put warning signs up or whatever, then the owner is to be held responsible. And there will be a fine. Um, and then the courts will rule. And basically the idea is now you're responsible. Okay, you can't control your animals. You can't control your kids. You can't control things outside of you. But if you know about their reputation and yet you do nothing to protect other people, warn them, then you're at fault. And so basically the idea is all these laws are basically if you know that somebody could be hurt or there's a potential for somebody to hurt and you do nothing about it, then you haven't loved you haven't loved. All that goes back to love is this has really nothing to do with laws, has nothing to do with court systems. It all goes back to love. If I really truly love my neighbor and I've got something in my house that's dangerous, then the loving thing to do is to protect them or to cage this thing up or fence it off or whatever. This is the idea of swimming pools. You're required by law to have fences around your swimming pools. Why? Because kids tend to gravitate towards swimming pools. Swimming pools are dangerous for kids. You're responsible for that. And so we kind of had the same principles and ideas even today. We had to put up bear, beware of dog signs. If you don't, then you're held accountable. So all this goes down. I, and this is something we need to understand. Even with our own laws, the thing that you constantly have to remember is that this really has to do with loving other people. It has everything to do with loving other people. Not because God's up there being a fun killer. Or making more restrictive. Oh, now I gotta go buy a fence. Well, then you don't really care about people. If the animal then gores a servant, then only a fine is to be paid. The owner is not going to be held incredibly accountable. In fact, the owner doesn't really have to pay much of a fine because it's his own servant. Now, this seems like it's demeaning to servants. I just got done explaining like servants are held just as equal, and then it's like. Okay, but if his servant gets injured, he doesn't really have to do anything. Why? Because remember the servant is his, which means if the servant gets injured and he can't work, then the owner's already paying a fine, so to speak. He's paying the fine by the fact that the servant can't work for him and he's losing money. 
Now, think of it once again. Like I told you, servants are less of slaves in the way that we think of slavery and more like employees. Okay, so you work on a factory. You are an assembly line. Let's say you're the boss or, or the CEO of a company that runs assembly line. And when you hire people, they know that they're signing up for a job that is dangerous. There are emergency stop buttons everywhere. There are protection guards everywhere. The boss has done everything that he humanly possibly can do to protect his employees from the heavy machinery from injuring them. Yet in the process, somebody still gets injured. The boss is not held responsible, even in the court of law today because that person signed up to that job knowing that there were dangers involved. He willingly came to work knowing the dangers involved. He went through training knowing the dangers involved. And the company put all these safety guards in place knowing the dangers involved. If he gets hurt, then it's not negligence on the boss's part, it's just accidents happen sometimes. And the fact that he is now gonna be out of work and the boss has to take care of him, the boss is paying a fine, so to speak, because he's lost a worker, and he's losing some money, and he's losing profit. And it's the same thing with a soldier. You got, you're a captain of a, an, an army, or a battalion leader, or whatever, and you order men to go off into battle, and some of them die. That captain, that battalion commander is not held responsible. Why? Because we all know the dangers involved in war, and everybody signed up for that. Does that make sense? And so it's, just, it's exactly the same way today. Nobody would expect that person to be held accountable unless it was found to be that the boss was negligent and did not do what was necessary. Then he is prosecuted, and it says it right here too because it says that the boss knows that there's dangers and yet he doesn't do anything about it. He's held accountable. And so, yes, there will be an investigation if I get hurt on the assembly line, Yes, there might be an investigation if too many people died in battle at the command of a general, but if it all comes out in the end and it's like, this is just part of working on the job and the dangers, then the boss isn't held accountable. So this really is no different than our laws today. Sometimes the minute you throw servant in, it just psychologically it makes us feel like everything's changed, but it hasn't. But ultimately in the end, it's that you're supposed to do what you can to protect people, but at the same time, Accidents sometimes happen. And if it's an accident, you're not held accountable. If you could have done something about it, you're held accountable. And that logically makes sense to us. So verse 33, if a man opens a pit, or if a man digs a pit and he does not cover it, and an ox or donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit must pay the loss. He must give the money to his owner, and the dead animal will become his. And if the ox or the one man injures the ox of a neighbor so that it dies, then he will sell it in a live ox and divide it. Okay, so basically, if I dig a hole in my backyard, my neighbor's donkey falls in, I did nothing to protect my hole, this is kind of the swimming pool example, it's my fault. I know the swimming pool is like, okay, but most of us don't have swimming pools and none of us have donkeys and our neighbors don't have donkeys. Because same idea, if you do something in your yard that is dangerous, if I dig a whole bunch of holes or I leave an electrical line exposed in my front yard and somebody's walking their dog and they just step in the grass and get electrocuted, I, that was my lack of love. That was my lack of caring for my neighbors and trying to protect them from a, a dangerous thing that I put in my yard. Yes, I wasn't finished. But at the end of the day, I should wrap things up. I mean, there's lots of times I've been rewiring houses 
and I'm not done rewiring, but I make sure I tape off all the electrical lines and put caps on and make sure, even though it's annoying to do that and have to take it off the next day, you do it because I know that there's people who could just wander by and get electrocuted. And so this is the idea that's involved. And so you need to protect your neighbor. Here's another idea. We don't have donkeys, but we have cars. So I have a friend, he pulls up in my car driveway and he gets a flat tire in my driveway. I could either say, sucks to be you. I hope that works out for you. I'll call a tow company if you want. Or I can say, you know what? If Christ was willing to die for me on the cross for my sins, and I'm called to do the same sacrificial love, the reality is this happened in my driveway. That nail probably was there because I dropped it somehow. Therefore, I am going to pay for the repair of the flat tire. I'm going to pay for the tow truck if he needs it. I'm going to do everything, and I'm going to come in and side-by-side help him do it and sacrifice my money and my time because this is my land, my property, and he would have never happened to him if it hadn't been for him being on my property. And so if you're extrapolating this to what it means to love your neighbor, and Christ tells you to love your neighbor sacrificially, even to the point of death, then there is no sucks to be you. There's the, the reality is this is my responsibility because this is my neighbor. And, and then Christ goes on even further and says, if you're like somewhere out in nowhere and you see somebody in need and you pass by, you're not loving them. So it doesn't even matter whether it's your property or not, you're supposed to help them. So imagine how much more accountable you're held for your own property. Remember, if you bring it all back to love, it just makes sense. And of course, when we get to Leviticus, he's going to say, love your neighbor as yourself. So if you put yourself in your friend's shoes and he's in your drive, you're in your friend's driveway and you're thinking, it'd be really cool if my friend could at least help me change this tire in the middle of the night as I'm leaving his house, then that's exactly what you do for them. And that's all God's laying, laying out here. They're not laws. It's love. It's love. It's the way you take care of people. Same thing with animals. Um, if the animal dies, then God does say, okay, you can divide the meat between each other <laughs> because one cow is a lot of meat to eat at one time. Now we, can, we got deep freezes and we can throw it in there. So God's not like, well, it's technically your friend's fault that your animal died, but hey, you need to give him some meat too. And you're like, that's not right. Well, part of it is you just can't eat that much meat all by yourself in a non-refrigerated culture. And two, God doesn't allow you to waste his animals. He cares about them just as much, well, not just as much as us, but somewhere up there. I don't know how much I'm not God. But they're important to him. Okay, they're important to him. So these are laws about animals. It's basically just protect your property, take care of your animals, and make sure your neighbors are loved in the process of it all. I had a quick question. Uh, In verse 32, it talks about uh, the stoning of that... um, if it's for someone or I guess my question was about actual stoning that seems like it's used a lot and I know you're probably going to get into stoning the way that stoning work is, is um it seems barbaric to us but remember it's not like that you have I mean shooting somebody with a gun is no different than hitting them with a stone okay I mean yes technically they'll die quicker with a bullet than a stone but not always so it seems kind of barbaric but if you kind of just amp it up to little pieces of lead it's kind of the same now, you have to realize, too, in some ways, it's not like they're throwing all these pebbles at each other and just like, oh, oh, oh. And it's like the slow BB gun death, okay? 
the reality is they're picking up huge stones and they're throwing them, they're smashing into you. So if the entire community picks up large stones and kills you, you're gonna die just as quickly as being shot. I'm not trying to say, yay, stoning's okay, but it's not as barbaric as we think. Second, why stoning? We get to Leviticus, this will make more sense. So part of this you gotta hold off till then. There's this big thing where God talks about being clean and unclean. And sin makes you unclean. And if you touch somebody else who's unclean, then you become unclean. And we'll talk about that a lot more. The main idea is that God is trying to say is sin is contagious. And I know not in a biological kind of virus kind of a sense, but if you've ever watched the TV long enough and had kids or been a teacher or a youth group or camp leader or whatever, sin is contagious. Okay, this is why parents warn, like, don't hang out with those group of kids. So sin is contagious. And so that's trying, what it's trying to communicate. So the idea is the stoning keeps you from touching them. And it keeps you from being contaminated by it. The other thing is this. Stoning makes sure that the whole community is involved. Because the whole community bears responsibility for the actions of the individual. That is foreign to us. As Americans, we think, it's not my fault. They're the ones that did it. I don't even know who those people are. But God doesn't think that way. God thinks community. And God thinks you're all responsible for the way that society turns out. And the way we all are. It's really easy to say, well, it's their problem that America is going down the drain. You bear responsibility too. We all bear responsibility. We've all contributed to this big giant society. We've all voted for our leaders. They, none of our leaders have been perfect. We've all decided to not, I'm not going to do anything about it, or it's not my problem, or I don't know what to do, or we haven't, we all bear responsibility. And so what God is saying is that you can't just hire some guy in some dark room somewhere to pull a lever for you, and you never know what happens, you're completely disconnected. You need to face off with this person, and you're contributing to their death, because the reason that they are the way they are, you bear some responsibility. And so you take... Now, what that does, it means two things. I'm not going to falsely accuse you as quickly. Think about how many false accusations we have in America. Lawsuits. People just want to get what they want, and they don't care about loving that person. If I know that I've got to walk up to you face-to-face and slam you in the head with a stone, no matter what Hollywood tells you, that's not easy. And anybody who's ever killed anybody, whether in war or even if there's something wrong with them, they'll all tell you it takes something away from them. And I think we're seeing enough movies where Hollywood's starting to get a little bit more accurate and showing that there's a huge toll on you, no matter what kind of a person you are, for taking somebody's life. And those faces stay with you and your dreams and that kind of stuff. And PTSD, or wait, did I just say that right? <laughs> yeah, okay. Sometimes I get the letters mixed up. Is a very real thing. It's a very real thing. And so you're not likely to falsely accuse people just because you don't like them or because you want something if you know that you have to do that. Two, you're going to be more involved as a community making sure the person doesn't turn out to be that way because you know you have to stone them. Okay? So, I mean, there's a lot more to studying that, but that's kind of like our, the answer right now. Is part of it is just keeps you separate and distant from being contaminated, and mostly it has to do with everything with the community saying, we all are in this together. They are that way because of us. 
I am less likely to accuse you because I have to be involved in it. Three, I'm more likely to make sure you don't turn out bad. It's not, well, it's my neighbor's kid. If that's the way they're going to be, then no, I'm going to be involved too. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take responsibilities for how my neighbors work. And I know that's delicate, but, but we're also individualistic society. They're not. They're community-oriented. And it takes a village to raise somebody. It takes a village to let somebody be corrupted. It takes a village to punish them. And that's kind of the idea of stoning. Does that kind of help? And so, and part of it too is it's just that's what they have back then too. Stones are free. Okay, it's when you're living out in a desert community, there's not a whole lot of things you can grab a hold of. And you're also talking about a bunch of farmers, so it's not like you got swords and spears and that kind of stuff. So a lot of it's what you have as well. So, property. Verse 20, chapter 22, verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he must pay back five head of cattle. Basically, if you're a thief and you can't give the animal back, then you have to pay for it. And you have to pay more on top of that because you have to pay for the fact that you put this person out. And that's kind of the idea of even in a car accident. You get in a car accident, it's your fault. You have to pay for it. You should pay even more because they would have never had to waste that day and deal with all this and, God forbid, talk to insurance companies. They all had to go through that because of you. And so there's this idea that you pay extra on top of what you damage. Now, on top of that, if a thief breaks in and he says, and you kill that thief and attack him, then there's no penalty on you. That thief was attacking you. He's breaking in. You were trying to stop him. He died in the process. There's no penalty on you. However, if it's daytime and you kill the thief, there is a penalty. What's the difference between daytime and nighttime? One, nighttime, you're more likely to be waking up in the middle of the night completely disoriented, and so you're not really thinking straight. You're going to, you can't see very well, so you're fighting, so you don't know exactly what's going on. Accidents can happen more quickly. And three, most importantly, there's probably less of a reason for that guy to be in your house and on your property in the middle of the night. I have friends who are cops, and when they say, when you know when your mom told you that nothing good happened after 12 o'clock, they're like, it's true. The weirdest, craziest psycho people come out at that time. And the only people that are usually out are people who are just trying to get home because they had to work late and the crazy people. Okay, so the reality is if somebody is on your property in the middle of the night in your house, there's probably no good reason that they're there, period. But daytime is different. If you kill them in the daytime, you're held to a higher standard. Why? First, there's more likely that that person has legitimate business on your land. Like, he's just checking the gas meter, okay? And you came at me with a gun. There's more chances that there people are out during the day. They're more likely to be there for legitimate reason. First, defending one's property at night is more difficult, but during the day it's easier. You can see things more quickly, you, it's better. You can see things at a distance better. You can yell for neighbors who are more likely to be awake and calm and respond. Neighbors are not going to be likely to respond in the middle of the night because they're sleeping. They can't hear you. Neighbors are out in fields usually all day. There's people around. You can yell and help for protection. And um, so there's a lot of that. And so basically the idea is twofold. One, there's a better chance of defending yourself and knowing what's going on more during the night, daytime than night. Second, some translators might think, think that it could possibly mean that you attack them, they died, and you let them sit there until the sun rays 
arose, and then you dealt with it. And that's the idea of like maybe you're trying to cover things up. And so you're not dealing with it quickly. Okay, somebody attacked you, you killed them by accident in the middle of the night, but your neighbors are sleeping, but that might be a good reason to wake them up now and deal with it as a community. So it could be either way. So basically it means deal with it quickly, don't bury the body. All the time in movies now. It's like there's a really interesting theme I've been noticing in movies and TV shows lately where good people accidentally kill somebody and then they hide the body. Like, like that's like now the new American thing. Okay, you weren't guilty for killing it, but nobody's going to believe you, so you might as well just hide it. <laughs> and it's like, and the Bible doesn't allow for that. That's not loving your neighbor. So then we get to verse 5, and it talks about grazing animals. And so basically it says, look, don't take your animals into other people's fields. It's like, don't raid your, your neighbor's refrigerator. Okay, don't just go to your neighbor and start taking a bunch of food and raiding it and taking it out, and then don't try to pay them back. And so the idea is if you're taking food or grass or whatever from your neighbor because of your animal, then make sure you pay them back. If a fire breaks out and it goes against you, to the, the, the thorn bushes so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the whole field is consumed, then one who started the fire must surely make restitution. A lot of this is just logical now. If something gets destroyed that is not yours because of your fault, then you're to make restitution. Um, verse 7, If a man gives his neighbor money or articles for safekeeping and is stolen from the man's house, if the thief is caught, he must repay double. If the thief is not caught, then the owner of the house will be brought before the judges to see whether he has laid his hand on the neighbor's goods. So basically, if your neighbor borrows something and somebody breaks in and steals it, and the thief is caught, then it's on the thief. But if a thief is never caught, then you have to go to court. Because it's like, sure, a thief broke into your house and took this. That's awful convenient. So now you have to go to the court and you have to prove why you legitimately believe that a thief came in and took this and it was not you. And then the judges are told to deal with it accordingly. And so you just can't, and basically what it does is it protects your neighbor from just saying, well, somebody stole it. Okay, that might be legitimate, but you've got to present evidence. Evidence has to be presented. Because then anybody would just say that. Now, if a man gives his neighbor a donkey, verse 10, or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep, and it dies or is hurt or is carried away without anyone seeing it, then there will be an oath to Yahweh between the two of them that he has not laid his hand on the neighbor's goods. Now, this same idea, now it's an animal. But now you're taking an oath. Now, this one seems odd. Because we're so used to people going to court systems and saying, I swear to God to tell the truth, so help me God. And you're like, they're so lying. Okay, like, OJ, come on. <laughs> and God says, take an oath. And if he swears by God, then everything's good and let him go away. That would not fly today. Now, why is that good enough for God? Two big differences. One, you're talking about a nation that already is the chosen people of God and God has already promised to dwell with them and literally physically be with them and be in the tabernacle. Which means when they're taking an oath, they're not sitting in some building downtown swearing an oath. They're walking in to the tabernacle, standing before that big giant pillar of fire that is God before them. And they're swearing in that pillar of fire, that God's name, I swear I'm telling the truth. And if you're standing before a pillar, a tornado of fire that has no fuel source, 
and you know it's God because he spoke to you from it, you're probably less likely to lie. (laughs) And two, you're taking that oath because everyone has agreed to the covenant. Okay, God has never promised to literally dwell in our nation. Now, I do believe that God is here and he's dwelling here, but he's never made a promise to physically show up and sit on that judge's seat as the judge. Two, not everybody in this country made a covenant oath to God. And so the difference is there is a literal covenant between God and the people that everybody took, and God is literally physically there before them. So swearing an oath does bring a more quick and just response than it does today. Today, the book of Romans has passed that pillar of fire off, so to speak, to our court systems. And our court systems need to do whatever they can now to figure out whether you're lying or not. And that means evidence, lawyers, polygraphs, all kinds, lie detectors, all kinds of stuff. And so the difference is we have a different situation than what they had today. I prefer the pillar of fire because anybody can be a polygraph or a a lie detector if they've been trained. So it's just a lot harder now for us without that covenant. Now, verse 14, if a man borrows an animal from his neighbor and is hurt or dies and his owner was not with it, the man who borrowed it will surely pay. So the idea is there's a difference between if if the owner and you are together with the owner's animal, then the owner bears some of that responsibility. But if you're away from the owner and you're on your own, then you bear most of the responsibility. So it's just kind of walking through those things. And so a lot of these laws are just common sense. So this is property and animals. 